All right. Well, um, we are uh, ready to go, I think. So um, thanks, everyone, for again, for uh, listening in. You probably want your content now, so we'll dive in. So, um, so the title of the talk is like turning from an evolution to revolution. And that kind of has to do a little bit with the virus. You know, this is a virus that under pressure tries to evolve, whether it's your immune system or passing from host to host and really over the centuries evolving uh, in our population, probably quietly doing things and somehow surviving. But as our life expectancy gets longer, um, suddenly we see end-stage liver disease and who knows how long it's been in our population. And then just in the course of despite the centuries of that um, sort of epidemic, we see this revolution of care. And um, thinking through that, I mean, you could work in a field um, most of your life and maybe not have a revolution in it. Think of some neurologic diseases or something. They're working hard on cures and changes, but you could work for 30 years and it finally comes or something right at the end of your career or something. But here we are in the midst of hep C, um, a revolution in treatment. So. Uh, listing the available drugs and regimens uh, is one of the goals. Um, describe the efficacy of treatments by virus genotype or initial therapy. I mean, pretty simple goals for this uh, presentation. The later presentations will delve a little bit more into detail. Um, and I may mention treatment of acute hep C uh, throughout the day. Uh, um, and if we mention that, that's technically not on the label for uh, hepatitis C treatment. And this is just a picture of anyone want to hazard a guess? Any historians in the room can figure this one out. Battle of Bunker Hill. Okay, so there's like Boston Harbor in the background. It's a little bit hard because some of the landmarks aren't there that you naturally would associate with Charlestown, but they built the monument after this, so um, a little bit hard to say. So, um, but yes, we are in the midst of this um, revolution, so to speak, and um, really things are, have completely transformed. And um, there's even talk of elimination. Like picture a state, um, or well, a country, a state, or just saying like it's eliminated. As a, as a problem, and it's possible. I mean, we now have the, at least one major tool, which is treatment for elimination. And the, you know, there's been steps towards preventing this from just um, spreading in our population. Um, I just bring up the first needle exchange in Amsterdam in 1985, because there was an awareness that there was non-A, non-B hepatitis out there, as Ken alluded to. Um, and that was started due to what? That was started due to HIV, the need to prevent HIV in um, people who inject drugs. We move forward a few years, and then finally a hep C test is developed, and we can screen our blood supply, and then we can start to screen people, and then we realized there was a much greater magnitude to this problem, because we, we were aware of some symptomatic cases after, after um, transfusion, but then the whole host of asymptomatic folks who were um, infected became more evident. Uh, and that decade, uh, with some initial treatments with interferon, eventually a breakthrough uh, where we were able to treat and um, cure maybe around 50% of people, coin flip, with 48 hour, um, weeks, not hours, weeks of a very toxic, high side effect uh, type of um, regimen of both interferon and ribavirin. And then fast forwarding now to 2013, we have these available, these first interferon free treatments, so those side effects pretty much went away for most patients. Uh, and then even a simplification of treatment after that. And so had you heard this similar workshop uh, a couple years ago, you would have heard about more different drugs. We will try to focus on the drugs available to you today rather than go through all of that in one time. But the WHO has actually set goals of 2030, which isn't that far off, right? Um, 
that would um, uh, be in the future just, what, 12 years from now, you know, there, there will be a new president by then, I guess, and, uh, um, but in any, you know, what are the steps needed in, yeah, what are the steps needed in between now and then to get to this idea of elimination? There is a report uh, put out by the National Academies of Science thinking about how to eliminate this as a public health problem. They talk about a lot of different steps. They include things that are uh, increasing screening, et cetera, but also like let's establish like a Ryan White level program. Um, Ryan White being for, as many of you know, for HIV infected folks. Um, it's ironic that if you have HIV, sometimes you have better services in many parts of the country than if you're mono infected. Uh, and so that was the concept there, but we're not really hearing about that, are we? But when you meet the patients and you meet all the needs um, whether you're a baby boomer or whether you're one of the younger persons now infected with hep C, uh, just the immense needs that are there, are we really moving towards that goal? And will it be other countries beating the United States? I think we're pretty sure that will be the case. Um, but you are part of this in, in terms of uh, preventing and um, curing hep C. Um, sorry, this slide should have been checked. It's not, um, not formatted. But basically, the goal of cure would be to reduce um, all-cause mortality due to hepatitis C. And I'll show you a, a slide later about what mortality uh, involves, um, as well as um, prevention of the liver-related events, prevention of, and then it starts here, hepatocellular carcinoma, liver cancer. So out of all the cancers, um, solid, organ, solid tumors, I should say, breast cancer rates are flat, lung cancer rates are flat, um, you know, liver looks like this. And that's driven large part, not only due to hepatitis C, also fatty liver and other things, but um, the rising rates of liver disease in our country, driven a lot by hepatitis C. And so I'm glad this is cut off in many ways. Treatment is recommended for all patients with chronic hepatitis C infection. Uh, there's no, no statement in the guidelines um, that would state that you only treat people with later fibrosis, right? You want to treat people earlier, before they're at risk for these complications, before they're at risk for hepatocellular carcinoma. You wouldn't not treat diabetes just because they're asymptomatic. You want to prevent the downstream complications of diabetes, and so um, some are sort of chronic with future uh, complications. The caveats can be uh, about people with short life expectancies would be the next word. So if you have someone that you've identified who has end-stage lung cancer and really hep C is perhaps not of their immediate concern, there is an exception in this class. But it doesn't have anything about fibrosis stage. It doesn't have anything about substance use. And we have a dedicated talk now that Christy will give on treatment of patients with opioid use disorder. It sounds like that's a big proportion of the people that you see. Um, it, it has no statement such, such that many insurers, unfortunately, did place on early on. Now, I just heard in Maine successfully removed sobriety, sobriety restrictions, which is huge. And so um, those of us involved in hep C care are just um, amazed at how patients with active substance use can make it through therapy, and, and Christy will review those data. So hepatitis C infection is associated with approximately how many years of lost life expectancy? Would it be one to five years, six to eight years, or 15 to 25 years? James Bond. All right. blind, so. All right, so many of you are saying six to eight years. You know, when you do test taking, often the middle answer is kind of where you gravitate. Um, but as it turns out, it's um, closer to this number, and I'll show you data regarding that. 
really the burden of hepatitis C has been growing for uh, quite a while. It's a disease where 30 years after infection is kind of a time where you have peak, um, uh, I shouldn't say peak, but a, uh, a really high rate of cirrhosis and complications therein, whether it's um, bleeding varices, ascites, all the things you'll hear about from Ken in a moment. Um, and that, those can lead to death, right? Liver cancer, not always treatable, um, uh, often leading to death. And so this is death certificate data, and this is looking at the rates that hep C is listed on a death certificate. And uh, comparing it to other infectious conditions, 60 other, uh, some of which are not fatal, but do include some, like HIV, pneumococcus, tuberculosis, serious burden diseases that can kill you. And you end up like this crossing of the line where hep C alone surpassed all 60 of the others as of 2013. And even that's an underestimate because many of the patients are dying in our ICUs of sepsis, renal failure, uh, other complications, bleeding, and hep C may not be listed on a death certificate if you've ever filled those out. Uh, that's very understandable. And so um, we, the burden is at least 20,000, if not probably closer to 30,000 deaths per year. A very significant burden in our country. This is um, Massachusetts data, which has the ability to take every hepatitis C positive test, whether it's antibody or viral load, and so antibody may not be active um, uh, hep C, as you know, and then match it with our death database. And what should the death rate be? It should be like this, right? Over time, more risk of adult conditions. Um, and what happens with hep C? You see all this excess mortality in patients in their 50s and early 60s, and that's exactly what we're seeing in our ICUs. And that all has to do with the baby boomer population who were infected 30 plus years ago at this point, who are now hitting our ICUs, um, perhaps unable to either access care, um, uninsured, or just denied therapy in the past, or who knows why, but not successfully cured of their hep C. Um, and so this is what Massachusetts looked like um, a few years back. What happens to patients with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis and they achieve what we call a sustained virologic response, which is a viral cure? That is measured by an RNA test 12 weeks after the cessation of therapy and is a true cure. And um, then you follow mortality um, over time. So starting over years, without SVR, people die. These are mostly people in their 50s, 60s perhaps with advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis. With SVR, you see these curves diverge. If you isolate on liver-related mortality, the curves are much stronger. Of course, people in their 50s, 60s may die of other causes as well, even with or without SVR. And so this kind of isolates on what we're doing with hepatitis C treatment. It, really, it reduces all of these complications by approximately 80% over the next several years. So, um, so it really is why the goal of, of the care of hep C patients is to achieve that viral cure as one of the primary goals. So, um, I'll briefly talk about genotypes. I alluded to that evolution in the population over centuries, and really this virus, from whatever its starting point was, um, has evolved to these massively different genotypes. On a structural level, they can be quite different. Interestingly, they pretty much all cause the same disease. Um, same natural history, et cetera. Genotype three, perhaps with a little bit more steatosis or fibrosis, if you really look, look at some epi studies, but it's not like a, a predictor. So patients always ask, like, when you talk about genotype, well, which one's the worst one? I heard it was one or whatnot. Well, the reason why one is out there is the worst one is because in interferon days, it was very hard to treat. And so um, that's um, why that might be out there. But overall, you should probably tell patients they're mostly the same because um, 
But this is the phylogenetic tree. It's kind of a, um, uh, an idea of a family tree. So the bigger the distance on the same scale as HIV, uh, the more different the genotypes are. And all of the diversity of HIV is contained here. And it, genotype one only contains that same level of diversity. And we know that this level of diversity is enough to prevent us from immediately having a successful vaccine for HIV, which they're still really working on at this point. Just imagine sort of the, the differences in hep C and what our immune systems are seeing, et cetera. So, um, but that's important as well for therapy. But then you'll hear, um, reinforced in this talk, but then I'm sorry, in my talk, but reinforced in Christy's talk about pan-genotypic regimen. So before we'd have to give like literally a talk on genotype one and then another talk on genotype two, three. But now we can kind of simplify things because of the idea of pan-genotypic treatment. Uh, this is the viral life cycle when you enter the cell just really briefly gets processed, um, replicates, assembly, and release. Um, the important points from this slide are that, A, it doesn't enter the nucleus. So if I showed you a similar life cycle as HIV or hepatitis B, you know, where there's a DNA intermediate, uh, hep C has an RNA-RNA polymerase, no DNA intermediate, no reverse transcriptase, so to speak. And so that's important, meaning that we do believe that this is a cure, that once the virus is no longer replicating from the hepatocyte, we believe it's a cure. Now, um, the way uh, many people don't think that, but um, providers pretty much know that, but then patients often get confused because of the antibody test. Because that antibody test stays positive, and so they get tested again, and they say, oh, you have hep C, based on the antibody test, you know, this can happen. And so you get this call like a year after you've cured them, and they're like, someone just told me I had a hep C again, what just happened? And that has to do with the antibody, an exposure test, not the actual viral load. But, um, so, and, and out there, there's some patients who tell me when I meet them, like, I don't think it's curable. Like, somebody told me it wasn't. So but the message is it is curable. And how is it curable? Well, um, you know, when you have a virus, it's like evolving and it's kind of diversifying within it, even within you, if you have this virus, it's kind of adapting to you. And if you look at that sort of swarm of viruses, they're all closely related, they're all the same genotype pretty much, but then underneath the surface there may be mutations happening because that <coughs> polymerase I was telling you about makes mistakes. And so if you look under the surface, there may be these mutation type things that confer at a position at the virus on a nucleotide level and then translate it to a protein where then it becomes re resistant in vitro, so to speak. Um, so, you know, if you have a swarm of, you know, what happens to be like a trillion viruses a day, but like a proportion of them will be having this resistance. So how can you treat it? Well, it turns out that, A, they're often at low levels, super low levels, even below like detection levels, unless you use like really deep sequencing type techniques, which we'll talk about later. Um, but the remainder of that strain is likely sensitive to another agent that you have on board. And so that's the simple concept of combination therapy for hepatitis B and why we learned this from HIV, so it's not too much of a, um, uh, a leap to reach that, but that's how we are able to cure even those underlying resistant viruses. Again, we used to have to introduce lots of different um, medications, but fortunately, this is a rainbow, so if you're colorblind, I apologize, but green is protease inhibitors, NS5A inhibitors is uh, this class, and then um, so these are polymerase inhibitors. And we always get the feedback like, um, just use the darn brand name. You're up there talking and you're like trying to not use it, because you know, that's CME, we're not supposed to use brand names. But, um, uh, so if you get confused, um, there's a color coding at least for the next few slides, but um, uh, basically, you're, uh, at this point, you're choosing 
no longer from uh, these first-generation protease inhibitors and, of course, interferon's gone. Ribavirin, as you'll see, is now really infrequently given. Um, so in the earliest days of these sort of novel therapies, this drug cefosivir is, as you'll see, a, a, a backbone of many of these agents. And you kind of looked across studies that were reporting sort of 90% response rates. So there were 10% or fewer sometimes, 5% who were not responding to the therapies. And you could pool these studies and look at the factors that were associated. And so when you have a smaller study, and these aren't that small, they're like 300-person studies, um, and you have, you know, 10% of them failing or 8% of them failing, sometimes, like, you can't really tell why they're failing. Statistically, you don't have enough power. But across multiple studies, you then begin to see certain factors fall out. And they include things like prior interferon experience, which means that they fail because they're being retreated, um, genetic factors, male gender, high weight, uh, cirrhosis, high viral load. All of those factors were kind of known from the interferon era and more evident when you had a 50-50 shot, and you can easily tell. Um, but now, um, really, if you have one or two or three of these factors, suddenly your response rates were much better. It was really when you had a multiplicity of these factors kind of adding up that it became a problem. And so um, we went through this revolution, again, just with these agents, and then 2013, and now we're at the point where the combinations that we can offer are, are multiple. Uh, however, we can focus in today, as I mentioned earlier, on just four real um, primary regimens, and we'll also talk about this fifth regimen as a retreatment regimen. And so um, out of the menu of choices, it has become simpler. And so there are certain ones that you're probably not really able to get, either because it's all formulary or it's a bit older or it's too expensive. Um, and so talking about those sort of easier-to-treat characteristics, you know, if you have multiple of them, you know, you can picture why patients um, you know, if they have a bit more fibrosis, maybe, I don't know, there's some virus reservoir not fully eradicated if you don't treat enough. Um, but you start to add sort of these diff more difficult factors. And one factor that's added from the interferon era that we'll review later are resistance-associated mutations that are more predominating. So they're more prevalent than just the one in a few that I was telling you about. The point is here that certain patients in certain situations there may be difficulties in shortening treatment. So some patients will get to this cure boundary. Now, everyone becomes negative early on, usually by week two, three, four. Sometimes they have this target not detected, just barely detected, but that doesn't matter much. But that's when you reach this point, and this is why you continue therapy beyond that point to complete eight to 12 weeks, so that they get to a true cure where there's no replicative virus able to relapse or return out. And so when we're talking a little bit about the nuances of 8 versus 12 weeks, that comes into play. Differences in the barriers to resistance, I'll review this in a later talk, so I'm going to speed through this right now. Um, but um, uh, basically, there's differences in the classes of agents. And um, over time, actually, uh, these numbers have changed because um, some of the classes, the next generation ones, have gotten better. And so it used to be kind of a low barrier to resistance with the first generation protease inhibitors, and now we've reached sort of variable with, because there are some that with higher barriers to resistance, which is simply how um, easy it is for the virus to kind of mutate and get around that drug target. Um, so uh, I'm sorry again, again about the formatting, but um, this is just really meant to illustrate when you offer treatments with, um, this was one of the multiple we called it 3D, we'll just call it 3D for now, 
um, as well as Lodipitzer Sofosivir, which is still on formulary. Is it still on formulary for you guys? Because some, sometimes even that's going away. Well, the point is, like this 95% number came out of studies like this, because you could offer for genotype 1 patients a 95% cure rate. And um, even with eight weeks of therapy at the end, for patients who are naive to therapy, you could, uh, and without cirrhosis, you could offer um, rather than 12 weeks here in the eight-week course. And these were overcoming sort of those single barriers. So like there are cirrhotics included here, you know, and it's really a multiplicity of um, uh, those factors when you began to reach problems. This is a regimen um, approved for genotypes 1 and 4, Elbisir grisofibir. Um, which is, uh, again, uh, it doesn't use a nucleotide, such as sofosivir, but, uh, and it um, can treat genotypes one and four. Uh, six, it's not approved for. We don't see a lot of six. That's more of a sort of Southeast Asian thing. Um, and uh, again, uh, pretty good um, response rates. Um, uh, uh, you see this difference between 1A and 1B in this case. And in this case, it has to do with resistance mutations. So we'll go over that briefly. And then uh, this, uh, again, um, We'll have to review the formatting a little bit because we lost some of the denominators. But the point is, uh, for cirrhosis, didn't matter. So you take non-cirrhotic versus cirrhotic patients. That's light blue versus the cirrhotic patients here. And in this case, this drug, for most patients, cirrhosis was not at least the major factor. It's really more about resistance mutations. This medication is safe in renal disease, and we'll briefly review that later. Uh, neither drug is renally metabolized and achieve, this is uh, cure rates over time, so this is your true cure rate, 99%. So instead of 95%, we started hearing numbers in certain populations, like 98, 99%. Uh, and that um, partially has to do with some of the uh, improvements in sort of the barriers to, to resistance, where some of the newer generation agents could then cover certain resistance mutations. And so even underlying the surface is those tiny little resistant uh, amounts of virus that um, perhaps some of these newer ones could overcome that. And then these pangenotypic agents um, with 99, 100, 197, those are the numbers we started to hear about. I mean, in the room at the liver meetings, these actually kind of nice, but I mean, it wasn't the first gasp the way like the first studies that showed like 95% were showing. But um, you know, it was kind of funny how we got used to these great response rates. But still, excellent for the patient. If you think about one agent, SoftBell, that can cover all genotypes. And it's now a good recommended option for genotype 2, 3. So I'll briefly talk about GP, or glucaprosir-brentazvir. Um, try not to use the brand name. And so, um, so what's true about this new regimen? Let's do a kind of pretest, And so um, we'll learn more about it. Um, most patients receive 12 weeks. It is a single daily dose pill. It should not be used for genotype 4 patients. It should not be used for CKD, stage 4 or 5. That's like end-stage renal disease level very low GFR. It has demonstrated safety for decompensated patients. So um, which statement is true of this newly? Which should be not true? No. No, which? It should be not true. Should be not true. Is that true? Which is not true. Okay. Four yes. of them are true. Right. One is not true. My bad. <laughs> I know. Test taking skills. Yeah, exactly. It's all about that. It's Harvard. It'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We up to enough? No? People are still thinking. Some of you have prescribed this drug, but some of you may not. So, again, it's a not question. All right. I think we might be getting as, as many answers as we get. So, 
so you already um, know the wrong answer here. So is that right? So it's not a single daily dose pill. Most patients will actually get eight weeks. Uh, it can be used for genotype 4. It can be used for CKD, but it does not have demonstrated safety for decompensation. So many of you are already on board with that. So that, that's one thing. This regimen is three pills once a day, and uh, to avoid, like, people just taking two or four or whatnot, it does come in these sort of daily packets to help uh, from a pharmacy angle with uh, adherence, and it's with food. Um, so, um, but the response rates are excellent. Again, apologies for the um, formatting issue. But, um, I mean, what's going on here, 99%? So if you take these medications, I tell patients it's not a guarantee. You know, A, things can happen where their medications get interrupted and whatnot, so I don't want them thinking that. And it's amazing how much you can talk to a patient and say that it's not 100%. Uh, very few things are in life, but this gets kind of close I mean, uh, in terms of um, efficacy. I mean, think about a lot of other agents that you use. I mean, what, what kind of um, efficacies are there? All right, so drug interactions are important. We have many pharmacists in the room, and Christy will go over several of these. If you're not familiar with this website, there is a great website that you can use to, um, to do drug interactions. Oh, it's not animating. Are we having technical issues with that, too? Um, there was a movie that worked last week on this talk, but it's not working. Anyway, so what you do, I'll just improvise. Uh, okay. So it's a, you type in the very appropriately named Liverpool website. So Liverpool and Hep C gets you to this wonderful website that then you can type in any Hep C drug, you, and you can type in virtually any prescribed drug known to man, and you can find out whether they mix or match. So if you're in a primary care office and you don't have those interaction checkers or whatnot and you want to prescribe, this is perfect for you because you can just quickly do that. And so one of the websites you should leave here with is the Liverpool Hep C website. All right, so from this menu, it's no longer like picking one agent from one class the way we would for HIV. Um, we do tell patients not to drink alcohol while in therapy. And this just talks about like a disclaimer, you know, how it says like eating raw undercooked food. This is more... Um, and um, whether ribavirin is there. So now it's really you just, um, some things are gone off the menu, kind of old. And then uh, this is foodie town, right? So you have, you have different, you just choose like, and sometimes the choice gets made for you, right? By the insurance. So these biologic barriers, we must say, are now gone. So we used to worry about these a lot, and we'd have talks on the treatment of the cirrhotic patient, the treatment of the HIV patient, which we'll still talk about today there are at least drug-drug interactions, renal disease. But now we can offer something for everyone with these excellent cure rates. Low side effects um, and drug interactions do remain an issue. But what, is the true, what are the true barriers that face hep C patients? It's not these. It's really more the structural barriers, right? It's more the, um, do they have insurance? Are they linked to care? Do they um, have competing things? Like I have to go to a court date or I have to pick up my kid rather than go to my hep C appointment. Um, so really, it's about psychosocial <coughs> and structural barriers at this point. And that's a bit what we're here to overcome. And we'll talk about uh, some of these, especially during Christy's um, opioid talk. And so the hep C care is not only about the medication. It's about a variety of other things, including prevention of reinfection. So we talk about transmission to our patients um, and uh, preventing things afterwards. And so harm reduction, et cetera. Um, the physical exam to rule out cirrhosis, you'll hear about that in a moment. Um, a variety of other potential things, talking about alcohol, fatty liver, uh, I like coffee for the liver, things like that. 
Uh, herbal, you know, that's a big one, whether milk thistle works or not. I mean, typically that's, n I don't think so. Uh, I don't know if Ken has a thought, but all the studies show a neutral effect. You can take a component of milk thistle and inject it into people and it does lower hep C, but it's just a component and that's not what people are taking from their GNC. So they probably have a better use of their money than a milk thistle product. But just a reminder, why you, you can prescribe the drugs, which are increasingly, we'll talk a lot about them, but they're, they're getting easier. It's, there's a lot of other components for hep C care. And so it's really about these sort of upstream things, like getting 100% of people here who are infected. Well, only if 50% are tested and linked to care and get their RNA test and you treat this. Now, we used to only be able to cure 50%, but now if we can get this number to 98%, great. But upstream, you, unless you do this work, we're not going to have that impact. We're not going to be able to reach that 2030 goal of elimination. So whatever, even if you're not directly involved in the hep C care, whatever you do to move people to up to up these numbers in this so-called cascade of care will be vitally important to reduce transmission, et cetera. And this just gives you a visual representation of the number of people who might need screening to reach the number of people, four to five million, and get them to treatment, right? And so if only a fraction of these are being screened, that, that's the problem. All right. So increased screening. Uh, woman of childbearing age, new recommendation there uh, to actually screen pregnant women. Uh, people inject drugs who many of you are involved in, and of course in HIV clinics with uh, sexual transmission. There's simplification of fibrosis, which you'll hear about, simplification of treatment. And so at this point, virtually all hep C that you meet should be treated. The question is when and how, and um, that's what we're here to go over today. All right, so I know um, because we started with a 10 minute late, late, we're now running a little behind, but I'd like to Take a question if you have a burning one, or I'd lo also love to turn it over to Ken. But any questions? Yes? Is treatment during pregnancy recommended? Not at this time. Okay. So you might wonder why we're um, then screening during know, pregnancy. Right? But then <laughs> the idea is that you will never identify the kid yeah. as infected unless you know the mother's status. And while it may be obvious to screen the kid of someone who's in an opioid, um, you know, well-documented history. But the way I view opioid use, and I don't know if you would agree, but um, there's a number of people who kind of dabbled in it perhaps, and then it just no longer is very active, or it happened 10 years ago when they were a teenager, or who knows when it happened, and their exposures are there. They may not introduce that into their social history, into your, your record, you know, upon meeting you, right? Sure. And then that social history gets cut and paste for the rest of their <laughs> life, right? <laughs> so, um, so the point is, for capturing pregnant women, if you actually, you could speak to this a little bit, in places like Ohio and Kentucky, mm -hmm. um, there, there are counties with just huge rates of, um, of women who have, um, are infected, and many of whom don't report even injection. There's um, some who report just sniffing heroin, actually, as their risk factor. There's a study from Tennessee suggesting that. Mm -hmm. So, rat, and a busy OB has a lot of things to do. And so isn't it easier just to screen? And so the first state in our union that has decided to recommend or mandate, I should say, hep C pregnancy and, uh, screening is Kentucky. Mm. And you go to Kentucky and talk to them, and they're rarely first in the nation for anything except basketball. So, all right. So that's the, so that's the idea of screening. Uh, frankly, ACOG is not fully on board yet, but um, uh, if you're involved in the care of pregnant women, um, we're, we have a pregnant um, overlap with opioid uh, use clinic, and so um, we're thinking about that. There are some preliminary trials that are looking at this, but I would not Just attempt screen. treatment yet until you're very comfortable with it. There are a few of us who've tried it. Off-label, off-label, off-label. 